Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? Resilience, which given our guest for today is not going to be a surprise at all. And before I introduce our most esteemed guest, who I am just thrilled that is here, I'm going to tell you a bit of a story. So yesterday, I got a bill from the city of Los Angeles for like $3,000. I don't live in the city of Los Angeles. My business is not incorporated in the city of Los Angeles. And one of my clients is a very big entity in the city of Los Angeles. And so because I have that client, I owe some taxes. I don't owe $3,000. So I get to have a phone call with some folks in the city of Los Angeles. What was so interesting to me was that I got thrown into a shame spiral about like, I'm a bad business owner. I can't handle all the things about being a business owner. And this kind of thing happens to humans. We get triggered by something. And the reality is, which intellectually I know, I'm a perfectly fine business owner. I've been owning my business now for five and a half years. I've been doing all the things. My business has grown every year. Year five, everybody says, is sort of the year where you hit your stride. I'm definitely hitting my stride. And it was so fascinating how quickly I was thrown from knowing all of those things intellectually into this feeling of imposter syndrome and I can't do it and I'm not enough and all of the things. And then one of the many things that I have learned from our guest for today is that resilience is not really so much about what happens to us because circumstances happen, we get thrown. It's much more about how we recover. And so I used some of the tools that I learned from him as well as leaned into some of my support system to help me recover and get back to myself when I actually think I'm doing pretty great. So with that, I would like to introduce our guest. Our guest today is Adam Markell, and Adam is the author of a recent best-selling book. If you are watching us instead of listening, I'm now holding the book up. So the book is called 
change proof, leveraging the power of uncertainty to build long term resilience. Adam is also a keynote speaker. He is a husband and a daddy and a relatively new granddaddy to a beautiful baby. And he is an amazing business mentor. And I put that last because he is also my business mentor. And you know those relationships which along the way you think like, okay, this is going to be good. This is going to be good for my business. It's going to be interesting. I'm going to learn some things from this person. And then you fall in love. And it's just like, oh my God, where have you been my whole life? Not in that romantic way, because as I said, he's a daddy and a husband to the wonderful Randy Markell. But like, oh, my heart is in love with this man. He is generous and he is funny and he is smart and he is often knowing exactly what I need in the moments that I need it. So as an amazing author and keynote speaker and uh, husband and daddy and business mentor and my very good friend, welcome to the show, Adam Markell. My God. I mean, <laughs> you're going to start me out crying. I'll be like the clamp and I can't speak or I'll be coughing. I was like, oh, literally, I've been introduced a few times in my life. <laughs> yeah, one or two or yeah, one or 200. That is literally, if not the best, it's among the very best introductions I've ever had. And I don't even know what to say except thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I am so glad that we are making this time to have this happen. I so appreciated the story that you told and the way that you used it as a both a means to discuss this, bring the resilience thing, the thing that we're not necessarily sometimes not paying attention to, but in yeah. this instance, you are paying attention to it and how it is that you also incorporate that into the kind of conversation that we can have because I am your guest today. I just thrilled for what that's going to look like. And I don't know what it's going to look like because you didn't tell me. And I love that. Neither <laughs> so do let's I. Have at it. Yeah. One of the best things you could ever have going for you as a speaker. I'm a keynote speaker. As you said, I research resilience. I talk a lot, train a lot in the area of workplace expertise and whatnot. And those can be dry topics. Yeah. So to be able to keep those things lively and engage your audience, you've got to be unpredictable. So I just love the fact that we're off to an unpredictable start. This is great. <laughs> and that's how I love to do this podcast. I generally don't prepare my guests. I don't prepare myself any more than what it is that I'm going to riff on in the beginning. So I have an idea of what that is. But then it's just an organic conversation that our guests get to here evolve. So Adam, what is something that you have become aware of that people are not paying attention to either consciously or unconsciously? And what is the cost of that inattention? Probably a lot of things, but the one <laughs> sure. thing that came up for me this morning was just thinking about inflation. Now, I know it's kind of a random thing, but it's on a lot of people's minds, not it everybody's is, mind. Right? It's certainly a concern. It's part of what we're all sort of dealing with in a variety of ways, whether we're business owners, or we're just getting food on the table for our, the family, et cetera. So I was thinking about the part of inflation that is actually very useful, the part of inflation that is 
something that we will benefit from. And I was exploring that and actually had a conversation with somebody who has a bit of a different expertise than I do or experience than I do in the area of innovation Hmm. and how innovation occurs. So I said to this person who was actually a guest on the Change Proof podcast, funny (laughs) enough, and I said to him, tell me if I'm barking up the wrong tree here, but I feel like innovation is like when necessity is great, it's the mother of all invention, et cetera, et cetera. I said, so when inflation is high, isn't it more likely, or tell me in your research, your expertise, isn't it more likely that there will be disruption that will allow for certain products and services to be delivered more inexpensively because people are paying more than they maybe need to be or want to be or have to be. And he said, no, that's absolutely the case. He says, huh. and you'll see that in a variety of ways. And then he spouted off some different examples. And he said, and coming soon uh, to a theater near you <laughs> is the fact that there will be more and more autonomous driving. And at some point we will see autonomous vehicles being used in a variety of ways that they are not currently allowed to be used and not a part of just everyday life. When that happens, we will see a change in something that has not changed since the invention of the automobile. And I thought, Hmm. okay, this is great. Tell me what hasn't changed. I mean, this is like, we talking about a hundred years now or something in the vicinity of, right? So he says, what it costs to drive an automobile, to have an automobile that you own, is about 70 cents per mile. He says that's been the case from the beginning because they were very, very expensive relative to but when you adjust for inflation mm. over the years, it's still about 70 cents per mile to own an automobile. He said when autonomous vehicles are used in the way that they are likely to be used in the next five or so years, the cost to operate a vehicle will be about 25 cents. So because vehicles that are run by companies, big company names, we all know, et cetera, the disruption may cause some automobile manufacturers to completely go out of business. Right. Others will consolidate. Others will pivot in some way, shape or form. Another book I wrote some years ago, (laughs) different thing, digression. But that ultimately, because of those changes to the average consumer, the cost to be in a vehicle, to have a vehicle take you from point A to point B on a regular basis in your life to use for the things like going grocery shopping or commuting to work or whatever it might be, taking your kids to the ball game is going to be 25 cents per mile and as opposed to 70. Yeah. And is that because then we will recapture that time and be doing something else with that time? Or is it because like literally the cost of ownership, what it costs to buy a car, what it costs for gasoline, what it costs for insurance, what it costs for all of the things will dramatically reduce. Yeah, almost to the point of zero, because what will happen is many, many people, and we see this with millennials and Gen Zs already, will just say, I don't need to own a car. Mm. First of all, in California, by 2035, combustion engines, gasoline engines will not exist. I mean, they will not be permitted. I don't know exactly whether that means that people will be grandfathered who own some, but they won't be selling any new ones. You won't see dealerships and all that kind of stuff, right? So we know that the gas-powered automobile is not quite a dinosaur yet. It's not the horse and buggy, (laughs) but it's on its way to that distinction. Right, within 15 years. EVs will be the thing. And then autonomous EVs that you will not need to own. So you won't own a car. You won't have to own a car. You won't have to have automobile insurance or those expenses that you were just 
so yeah. familiar with. Right. They just won't be a thing you have to spend money on. Now, you will spend money to have those cars take you to and from. But uh-huh. when you add up, according to his calculation, what is the predictable cost of that experience of getting where you want to get yeah. safely and securely and all the rest of it, it'll be about a third, let's call it, a third wow. of the cost that it currently is to people. So you go, that's just amazing. That is amazing. And part of what's so interesting about it You live a little deeper into Southern California than I do. I live, as I was discussing, just outside of the city of Los Angeles. And obviously, L.A. Perhaps uh, not far enough outside. (laughs) (laughs) It would appear. Another topic (laughs) for another day. The city of Los Angeles not paying attention to, (laughs) Janine. Well, the city of Los Angeles is a car culture. It is one of the things that when I was living up in the Bay Area before I moved to L.A. that had me think I do not want to live in Los Angeles was I didn't like the idea of being judged by the kind of car that I drive. There's a lot of status in some places in the country put on what kind of car you drive. For a while, there was a lot of status if you had a Prius because other kinds of environmentally friendly cars didn't exist. So if you had a Prius, you were an eco-warrior. And now if you have a Tesla, some might think that, some might think other things because of all of the issues around Tesla. But if you have a BMW, if you have Honda Accord, there is status in this city, and this city is not alone, then has me think about how much we internalize those status messages about who we are. I'm going to have a podcast guest coming up who he and I went to high school together. And we probably never said a word to each other in high school. He was different, in, different clicks. Well, And as I said, I was talking with my folks a couple of nights ago about this. And I said, high school was a caste system. And my dad said, you mean a click system? I said, no, no, I mean a caste system. And it wasn't like those at the bottom of the caste were begging in the streets. Thankfully, I both grew up at a time when and went to a high school in which the sort of mean girls stuff that we hear about, that would not have been tolerated. So Sean Duffy is the person who's going to be a guest. He was in the elite crew. He was a triple threat, which is what you had to be. You had to be really smart, really book smart. You had to get good grades. You had to be a jock, an athlete, and you had to be beautiful. And Sean Duffy was all of those things. And fast forward four decades, which he said to me in an email last night, I was like, holy shit, I cannot believe four decades, like literally it was four decades ago, like last June, I graduated from high school in 1982, been four decades since we graduated from high school. He is still like in my mind, he's still in that category, right? aged 40 years, and he's an artist. And being an artist was not at all within the categories of any of the casts. That was not a thing that kids were in my high school. There really weren't even drama nerds. Like 
there were some kids who did drama, but that wasn't sort of what their identity was. And so it's really thrown me into this conversation around identity, also connected, Adam, to the conversation you and I were having a couple of weeks ago about identity. And so with what's happening with automobiles and how connected some people are to their automobiles and how much it has to do with sort of how we think of ourselves, it occurs to me that there's this whole opportunity that we can take advantage of, if we so choose, to decide to disassociate ourselves from maybe some of the material things that we cling to as part of our identity and rethink some of how we craft our identities for ourselves. Hmm. What do you think about that? I think there's an opportunity to do that for sure, and maybe always. And it's interesting because, yeah, I think identity is such a powerful motivator. Yeah. It's a powerful inspiration to us. Um, and we in, can get in, hooked in, in negative ways about our identity or in ways that just don't serve us anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think that's for sure the case. And there's seasons. So right. the season of certain identities, I think people think that somehow or another they're supposed to be discovering their reason for being. And that's why they're here for all eternity, I suppose. Uh And I don't think that's the case, having written a book called Pivot, (laughs) which is a book about personal and professional reinvention. My feeling is quite the opposite. It's really that we're not locked into an identity for any longer than we want to be. You can get into what we used to refer to as the pivot phone booth. It's like the Superman analogy, (laughs) but you can get in that phone booth anytime you want Mm -hmm. and come out different. And maybe it sounds a little stagey, canned, or uh, easy, simplistic, but it really is true. I mean, our only identity or purpose, if you will, is to be. That's mm-hmm. at least my philosophy. Like mm-hmm. We're here to be and experience being humans. This mm-hmm. is a human experience. It's very varied. It's very much a dynamic environment. You can call it good or bad or up and down or anything you like, but there's a lot of duality. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of nuance. And I do believe that that's primarily what we're here to do is just to experience it. But that said, we also can't sit around experiencing life. (laughs) As somebody once said, they'll come and take your furniture. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) At some point, that's what will happen. (laughs) So we do things and we're not locked into doing any particular thing for any particular length of time. I had a fortune to be a guest on a podcast of a millennial business owner. And we were having a pretty animated conversation about this kind of thing. And he said to me, listen, just imagine that my audience, because his audience is filled with people in their 20s and 30s. He said, I think they're just so neurotic about getting it right and not wanting to get it wrong and wanting to get it right so quickly. Mm -hmm. And I just started going into like an expletive tirade (laughs) on that topic. Yeah. Because I'm like, you're just not going to get it right. right. And maybe you will get it right for a period and then it will be wrong. So does that mean everything you did to that point was wrong because it, it's not right anymore? <laughs> right. I mean, who makes up these bullshit stories? <laughs> right. I know the answer. We do. We do. <laughs> That's who makes them up. Right. But we can also decide that it is just that. It's a nonsensical story that we don't have to buy into. Yeah. Certainly not when we become aware that that's what's really going on. Yeah. And so I want to connect this back to resilience and the idea of, I want to sort of marry these two things around 
pivoting and our ability to reinvent ourselves and our ability to decide at any point, like, yeah, that is what I thought, or that was my frame, or that was the structure I was working under. And that's not working for me anymore. And so I want to change it. And that change process, that pivot can be challenging. And then what are our opportunities then for recovery on the other side as we come through that change process? Because goodness knows we have been in a period of unrelenting change. And many people say, for a number of reasons, this train is not stopping anytime soon. And if we haven't, if anything, it's it's going to speed up. And if we haven't gotten good at change management, one of the things that I help with, and if we haven't gotten good at resilience, one of the things you help with, we're in trouble. And so give me your brilliance on all of that. Ah, which of all of that, but no. (laughs) (laughs) Wherever you Um, want to start. Yeah, no, I'm going to start with this idea of recover. How do we recover? Mm -hmm. And your story was one about not, you know, sort of fighting with yourself over this letter and this bill and all these things and where ultimately become reactive and all that. It's more than that. I mean, we get it that the world we live in today is more easily triggered, which means pretty much anybody we meet, person behind the counter at the supermarket, person sitting next in the next car at the light, wherever it is, person on the school board, people are more easily triggered and there's a reason for it. Yeah. Just as we saw with Will Smith, which I was interestingly interviewed by Psychology Today to talk about this as a resilience researcher and expert. They wanted to get my perspective on that event when it happened that Mm -hmm. week that it Mm -hmm. occurred. Everybody knows that the Will Smith incident, right, which is at least for some time now going to be a part of his legacy. It's a part of his brand right now, not one that he wanted, but one that's there nonetheless. So they said to me, well, what's your thoughts on what occurred? And I said, well, to me, you guys cover the psychology end of it or any other end of it. I feel like the reason we saw him snap was because he was depleted. Yeah. And because he was depleted, and there's a myriad of ways that we become depleted, like when we react the way you were describing, when we start to look at something like that and go, I got this bill, I should have known, I should have had a handle on this. This is stressful. I don't want to pay. Like I'm a bad business owner all the worthiness, the deserving stuff, all of it, all the self-flagellation, <laughs> all of it. Right. It's so easy to go that place. That ultimately has one net effect, and that is that it depletes us. Mm. It depletes our energy. Yes. And we need energy yes. to be patient. We need a lot of energy to be patient, as an right. example, whether right. it's with our kids or whether it's with a stranger, someone else's kids, or whether it is that person that's leaned on their horn because you weren't immediately hitting the gas when the light turned green or whatever it might be, that in those moments when we are depleted, less than at our best, we are more likely to be something less than our best. And that's what happened with Will, I believe. Yeah, he's living an ideal life, at least in terms of the people who look at him. Right, from the the outside. outside. Yes, Right. right. Ideal. Everybody would love to switch places. But meanwhile, he's sitting there in that seat and in front of a worldwide audience, we watched him process very quickly what was happening and come to the conclusion that it was a fight or flight situation. 
And he did not pause, as in the book that you have there, Change Proof. He did not cover these three important steps of pausing, asking, and then choosing. He simply went to the choice, yeah. the reaction, which was defend my wife at all costs. Yeah. This is a life and death moment for her. And I am a warrior to defend her honor in this moment, parenthetically, in a way that he wasn't able to do for his mother when his mother was being abused when he was just a young man, a young boy. Right. So, you know, in hindsight, if we're at 30,000 feet, we look at it and go, oh, that could happen to anybody. Right. But it happened to Will Smith. On an international stage. Right. Audience. Exactly. So to me, when you see that happen, it's beautiful on one level, because if you see some person who's just some random, the kids would say, right, (laughs) some rando lose their crap on somebody at a light and flip them off or get out of the car and you see road rage events and incidents, right? You go, ah, it's just part of what's wrong with the world, blah, 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 right? But when someone like Will Smith does that, it's an indication that the things that we think, this is back to your comment earlier about identity, Mm -hmm. the things that we think are most important in our lives, the things that will gain us what we're most working to attain, he has. Right. He has every one of those things. Everyone, yes. He's famous, celebrity, he's an Tons of money. He's got more money than you could ever count, et cetera, et cetera. He's got a gorgeous, beautiful Beautiful wife. Beautiful right. kids. kids, healthy, yep. all of these things. He's going to win that night. He's going to win the Academy Award. Yep. Right. The peak of performance <laughs> in, in that industry yep. is going to be bestowed on him. And the same night that he's going to get on stage and smack somebody yep. and commit an assault, a battery right. on someone that he could have gone to prison for. Sure. And many people less famous than him would be would in have. jail yes. for now in yes. this moment. So you go, Holy smokes, how does that happen? And to our point, what could have been done about it yeah. beforehand right? so that it never happened, that it never had to happen? And that's where our research and our perspective on resilience is a bit different than a lot of what's been taught and really even just what people think yeah. based on- What they understand. On the media, based right. on what they've learned from people around them. Like we think of it as two paradigms, this old sort of Rocky Balboa paradigm, right? Where everybody's just, if you can take a punch, then you're resilient, right? If If you can get knocked down, right? Yeah. And get back up every time, get back up. You're resilient. It's about endurance. How much can we take? How much can we endure? What we're seeing in front of us is a world of people like Will Smith, who've been taking it and taking it and taking it and taking it. This stress mounting one thing on top of another. This seemingly endless exhaustion, perpetual tiredness from the onslaught of everything that is coming at us all day long from content, the media, the aggravations politically, socially, and in every way. And then our isolation in the pandemic. pandemic, Right. And you go, you couple those things together. It's like a Molotov cocktail. It's a thing that when we are that depleted, And our paradigm for what to do about it is simply to endure it Mm -hmm. like it's a marathon. We have to run endlessly. It only ends in one place, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's what we saw with Will. It ends in anger. It ends in anxiety. It ends in depression. It ends in suicide. It ends in substance abuse. And to the point in the business world, it ends in burnout. And all the associated things of burnout, like lost productivity, Yep. Lack of engagement. The great resignation is only a reflection 
of all of that depletion that was not being addressed. Yeah. And the answer is recovery, because the new paradigm for what makes for resilient individuals and leaders and organizations is this capacity to recover. And by recover, it's so interesting when you said this, Janina, it just really was very pointed for me because the way that you use that word, and I should know whether this was an adjective or is a noun, I never know what that <laughs> stuff is other than it's a person, place, or thing. It's an action word, right? It's a verb. Right. Other than that, I have no clue, right? But the way you used recover is like to the sense of how do I get back to myself, mm -hmm. which is part of it. Mm -hmm. But the way we use the word recover, it's how do you restore, mm -hmm. regenerate, reset? How do you recharge, in mm -hmm. other words? Mm -hmm. And it's not the recover as like I slipped right, and now I'm recovered. I regained my composure. There's an element of that, yep. but it's more the concept of what did I do to take care of myself mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, so that I am less depleted. I have filled my tank back up. I recharged my phone. God knows <laughs> we're all addicted to this thing. So you go one day without sticking a charger in it. And what do you see at the end of the day or before the end of the day? It's a black screen. Right. To me, whether it's Will Smith or it's the person at the light who's lost their shit in a moment, it's just the culmination of an exhaustion that does not allow us to then ask questions the way you were asking. Mm -hmm. Could I reframe this? If I was going to reframe what's just occurred, me getting this letter or what have you, or meaning I'm making out of getting this letter with this unexpected bill, right? is there another way for me to look at this, put it in a different frame? What does that look like? That pausing to ask those questions, to find that, yes, you have a lot of other ways. I am a savvy businesswoman who is succeeding after five years. Most businesses by five years don't exist anymore. More than 90% of them are gone. Gone, right. To be in a business that's in momentum and succeeding after five years is you change the framework and everything then is different because yep. you did that. And you cannot do that as well or at all, I would say if you are so exhausted that that higher level thinking, critical thinking skill, critical feeling skill, yep. you train on this topic without those skills in that moment, you're hooped. Right. <laughs> right. You fall victim to that thing yep. and it takes you out. Yep. And part of what I love about the journey that I'm on is I talk about all this stuff all the time and of course, I am still a completely fallible, in it with everybody else, human, who, even though I know this stuff intellectually, I still get hooked, I still fall down. And so then how do I get up? How do I recover? How do practice resilience? So if there are folks who are listening to us and feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm in that kind of a place, or I'm in a place of change, or I'm in a place where I'm realizing I am depleted, what are a couple of the tools that people can use to begin to step out of, step away from, reframe the place where they find themselves? I'm so glad you asked me that. Because <laughs> that's the angel is in the details, right? Yes, or something right. like that. So we look at resilience when I'm delivering a keynote or sometimes consulting an organization in this space. The first thing that we do is we redefine the paradigm as one of recover 
versus endure. So we just yep. understand that's the case. Second kind of footing, if you will, that we sink into the ground is that the time to create your resilience is before you need it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So right. the time to be working on resilience isn't right at the moment that the pandemic throws your business into sideways. Right. Or at the moment when Chris Rock is making jokes about your wife on stage. Right. It's the work that you do before you're going to need it that makes that work all the more power yep. usable right. and powerful. Accessible. So, Exactly. So we work on our resilience beforehand. I can share a personal story about that in a moment. And the third piece is that you create rituals. Mm. You ritualize recovery. And that falls into these four different areas, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. So we literally craft, create rituals to recover in each of those four specific zones. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody might be going, well, why are you calling them rituals? And you mentioned spiritual. So is this somehow religion involved in this? I'm <laughs> like, yeah, definitely not. I have a great deal of faith in my life, but I'm by no means sharing that faith in what we're talking about. Yeah. So spiritual in those four quadrants means our alignment, how much we feel on the inside, the things that we're doing are congruent. So for example, we have a resilience assessment tool, a proprietary tool that we've worked with now almost 5,000 leaders across the globe, very, very large Fortune 50 companies to startups and pretty much everything in between to assess where they fall in these four different areas. And in the spiritual zone, as an example, question 13 says, I am engaged in a livelihood that is in line with my core values and beliefs. Mm -hmm. And across almost 5,000 of these assessments, the median answer score out of 100 is like an 88 in that mm. area, which is green in mm. our world. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say that the overall score across all 16 questions, that takes three minutes. So that's what's wonderful about this assessment tool, three minutes, 16 questions. <laughs> and very quickly, we know in four questions to each zone, we know how people are doing mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, how resilient they are in those four areas. So in that fourth area, the spiritual one, we see green, even though across the whole of the 16 questions, the aggregate of all of those answers produce a median score of 64. Hmm. That means that leaders across the globe in every industry you can think of are leaving about a third of their productivity yeah. on the table, Right. which is, it's not shocking. Right. I mean, like we all get that. That's why consultants have work because <laughs> we know <laughs> that that's truly the case. But we're identifying not only that, that it is the case, but why it's the case and where we're specifically weak that we want to focus on. So question 13 is a bright spot. Mm. But question 14 says there are gaps between what I say is important to me and what I actually do with my time, how I mm. allocate my time, energy and resources. Yep. And that's more often than not, a score in the 50s, yeah. it's red. Yeah. It's red. So what that tells us immediately is there's this thing that we know that we're doing. We're doing work that makes us feel like we're on the right track. Right. We're contributing something. It's valuable. We feel good about it. We're not selling out. Yeah. And then in the next instance, And at the same time. We go, but I'm not actually spending my time the way I want to be. Like I'm not seeing my family or I'm not yeah. spending enough time doing volunteer work or whatever it is that I want to do. So there's that disconnect. So that's the spiritual component. It's nothing to do with religion. And when I say rituals, I mean, these are things we do consciously versus things that we do unconsciously. You, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so what's a good example of an unconscious habit? 
we use in the book the example of the toothbrush. We have the toothbrush challenge. We tell people, figure out which hand you pick up your toothbrush with every morning. We all know which one that is. You might have to think about it or wait till morning, see what you do, and then switch it and just take one week to just only use the opposite hand, whichever hand is non-dominant. Yes. For a week and see how much of a creature of habit you really are. (laughs) But without thinking about it, because to that point, you weren't thinking about which hand you operate your toothbrush from. You just do it unconsciously. So rituals for us are things that you do consciously, intentionally, that ultimately will become unconscious because you won't have to think about them anymore to do them. Right. And so, for example, when it comes to the mental resilience side, most people they are immediately putting their brain into a state of fight or flight because the second they wake up, they are producing cortisol, adrenaline, and many people are adrenal fatigued in part because their day starts that way and continues as a cocktail of cortisol coursing through <laughs> their veins all day long. And because it starts with, the first thing we're doing is we're picking up our phones. That's right. Yeah. That's, you knew exactly where I was going with that. Yeah. And so first thing that they do is take a look and see, okay, What have I missed? Whether it's missing something in social, missing something in the news, or almost as bad or worse even sometimes, checking their text messages and their email right out of the gate. And that's because, of course, this is the excuse I get from folks. And I love it when I hear this. But I use my phone as my alarm clock. (laughs) (laughs) You go, oh, have you ever heard of this thing called an alarm clock? (laughs) And go on eBay and get one of the ones that wind up. And then you can work on two rituals for your mental resilience all at the same time. You set your alarm, wind it up, and that tick, 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 tick becomes your meditation to go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And then when you wake up in the morning, you give yourself, and this is a simple ritual, the first 10 minutes of the day for yourself. I believe 30 is optimal. If you give yourself the first 30 minutes where you are choosing to be in stillness, whether it's for gratitude practice or it's for prayer or it's simply to just not have any tech or any sort of other things other than your waking self mm-hmm. and your waking thoughts and the waking ideas and inspirations and intentions for the day, as opposed to letting the world of this thing direct your attention, your focus, your energy, et cetera, including triggering you in many ways, which again, just contributes to that exhaustion or depletion. And it starts the moment you wake up. So I'll pause there because there's a myriad of rituals for the mental resilience and a myriad of ones for emotional and many, 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 many for physical and just as many for the spiritual side. And there's one other piece of this that I'll share, which is kind of a nuance to if you're going to create something like a recovery map, which is what we work on with folks. And again, in presentation, we say, okay, so we're aware now that what we want to do is ritualize our recovery because we're weak in certain areas. Mm -hmm. Choose one thing that you're going to commit to changing, one new ritual that you're going to create. And if you can create one new ritual in each of the four zones, fantastic. Mm -hmm. If you can only create one in the mental zone or emotional zone or whatever it might be, physical zone, like I'm going to walk. Great example. I'm going to walk after every meal. My new ritual. I mean, I've been doing it for a long time, but I mean, somebody says, this is my new ritual, right? Yeah. I'm going to walk after every time I eat a major meal. I'm going to uh-huh. eat breakfast, I'm going to walk. Lunch, I'm going to walk. Dinner, I'm going to walk. That's it. Simple. They create a recovery map with one or more new rituals. I wouldn't huh. suggest choosing more than one 
in each of those four zones. Yeah. And then you have something that you are now going to move forward with. The nuance to this, Janine, is that you can not only create a ritual for each of those areas and try it on for size and test it, but you can also start to schedule them into your day Mm -hmm. as a part of a toggle process that we think is really important because the creating resilience, working, practicing, performing resilience before you need it part yep. comes from this idea that in throughout the day, there are moments when you go, I'm going to take a break now. Mm-hmm. I'm intentionally going to take a break and I'm going to do something that I know is going to restore me in some way. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, by baking that into your schedule each and every day, you are in essence refilling the tank, refilling the tank. If it were a bank account, you'd be making more deposits than you would be withdrawals. And that back and forth between your being fully focused on your work and on your life and just sheer recovery, rest, Mm -hmm. et cetera, anything from 10 seconds, and I kid you not, we've got rituals that take 10 seconds to the optimal time span of sort of 10 to 30 minutes or when you have the time, weekends or whenever it might be Mm -hmm. that you have longer periods of time that there are things that you can also toggle to longer recovery methods that when you start to develop these as part of how you operate, how you operationalize your life, your leadership, your business, you will see resilience levels go up. And part of what I love, there's many things about what I love about what you're talking about, but part of what I love about what you're talking about is the getting into action part of it, even if the action is inaction, even if the action is meditation. Because one of the things that I have noticed in my resilience and my recovery process is that when I can get into action on something, that is when the change starts to make itself manifest. And when we are learning new practices that are then going to become rituals, when we find ourselves hooked by something and we need to get ourselves recovered. It's the action that we take after we sit in our dirty diaper for a minute or two that we realize, okay, yeah, this is not where I want to be. This is not working for me. All right, what am I going to do? How am I going to get myself out of this? And really, it then it becomes the action that we take that begins that process of recovery when we find ourselves having fallen down. Yeah. And I think this is the interesting part of this. So two things. One is that you can ask yourself the question, what actually gives you energy? Because when we talk about recovery, again, you can simplify this to say, what is it that will restore my energy? Give me energy, right? And then you can say, so is being around other people a way that I will regain energy? Or is being more of a solitary mode the way that that will happen? And Again, our consciousness, if we are aware of that question and we ask ourselves that question, you might say, the last thing in the world that I want to do now that I feel exhausted is to be out to dinner with 10 people today (laughs) or go to a mixer or a networking thing. Yeah. But you could also be a person who loves that environment. Right. And as soon as you get around other people, your energy levels increase. And so you go, that's the perfect place for me. You're an action taker, Janine. So for you, part of your recovery involves when I get an action, like I'm in momentum, I'm out of my way. I'm like, feel good. And some other person might be like, no, 
for me to regain energy, I have to lie flat in mm-hmm. the dark room and you go, no judgment. Sure. It's not a good or a bad or a right or wrong. Yeah. It's simply what's effective. Yeah. So whatever's effective for you, that's why you have to ask the question, what's going to help me restore my energy and then do that thing. But when and, you get really good at that, it doesn't have to take very long. Right. And part of what I love about that question, a mentor who I have also had the privilege of working with, Alison Armstrong, has a nuance to that question, which is not only what gives me energy, but what gives me energy in this arena. So when I need to be patient, what fills my patience tank, which might be different from when I need to be creative, what fills my creativity tank? So I am a natural introvert. I get my energy from being by myself. And so it takes energy from me to be with other people. And so then when I am with other people or when I am being called upon to be up, to be on, that takes energy from me. So then what are the things that restore that energy, which might be different from what it takes for me to be patient or for me to be creative? And so thinking about all of the different arenas, all of the different buckets in our lives For some of us, what gives me energy is one thing. And for some of us, what gives me energy is many different things. There are people, there are activities, there are non-activities that give me energy in different ones of my buckets. Being by the ocean gives me energy in many different buckets. It's the reason there's so many pictures of water in my office. And it doesn't fill them all. It fills most of them, but not all of them. And that has been a process of discovery. And like, okay, I think this would give me energy in this arena. Test it out. Hmm, maybe not so much. Okay. (laughs) And sort of explore and be willing to try on a few different things and realize, yeah, that works. Or "Hmm, that doesn't work so much or helps a little, but not as much as I need. And so I love that nuance to it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the arena is a great word because if you were to think, anybody that's listening to this who's in either business for themselves or they're operating or part of the operation of a business or in a job of any kind, really, if you were thinking of yourself in that role, in that arena, like it's an Olympic arena. Right. Not that every single day or every activity is an Olympic performance, don't get me wrong, but if you were an Olympic athlete, then everything that would contribute to, lead up to, that performance would be of a certain level of importance to you. Right. I often will ask an audience, if you were an Olympic athlete, what would you have done last night differently than what you did do last night? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to which we get a lot of laughs, right? Because most people didn't get enough sleep, stayed up late, they drank too much, whatever. They didn't eat the everything right they weren't supposed what, what, to eat. They didn't eat what an Olympic athlete might eat. No. So it's just a question of Again, this is very useful information. To me, this is information that I honestly wish I had known when I was in my 20s. I'm glad I know it now. I'm glad I've been involved in it and researching it for some time now. But it's really useful, Mm -hmm. but only, of course, if you make use of it. Yeah, if you put it into action. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sure we'll put the link for people in the show notes we can put to take their free resilience assessment so they can find out their own baseline score and stuff like that. Back to the just the Will Smith thing for a second, because he's an example of what it looks like when that domino tipped and he wasn't there 
in that moment couldn't be his best. I had a moment like very different than his, but it's the last day of my vacation. You probably remember this. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in Mexico with my wife (laughs) and last day and I'm squeezing because that's me. I'm like a suck them. The last (laughs) drop of juice, especially out of a vacation. Right. In this beautiful resort in Mexico. And we have to go to the airport. We have to leave. Pretty sure we had like 90 minutes to leave. Mm. And we still haven't packed. Now, we didn't have a lot of stuff, but it's going to take a half hour to pack. It's a half hour to get to the airport. I got about a half hour left. And I know what Randy would have loved if I had just said to her, hey, I know it's a little early, but why don't we head back to the room? Let's relax take our time packing and just be in no rush at all. Yeah. She would have been like, Oh, uh, that's such a great idea, honey. Who is this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and where is my and husband? Where is my husband? Right. What have you done with my husband? What have you done with him? Right. Body snatchers. No, <laughs> I said to her, Hey, want to go for a walk on the beach? Yeah. Let's get, should we have one more walk before we leave this paradise? Right. She says, sure. Cause after 33 years of marriage, <laughs> there's just, that's not a battle that right. she wants. Yes. Sure, so, honey. I have my glasses on. I've been swimming in the ocean all week. It's a very difficult, the Mexican, I don't know, it's not the Riviera, it's the Pacific Ocean side, very steep, firm beach, strong current, et cetera. Anyway, I go in the water to just cool off because we were sitting out on the lounge chair. And so I didn't plan on swimming. I had my sunglasses on. And this wave rears up like shore break wave. Yep. And I'm a lifeguard and people <laughs> that might know my story. I am a swimmer. Yes. <laughs> this wave comes up like I've not seen all week long. It's a monster. I couldn't believe it. I actually screamed at Randy to get back. <laughs> and she remembers hearing me say that. And she turned her back to go up. And this wave just literally carries me up. And instead of dolphin diving through the wave because yep. I have my glasses on. Right. I go, I just uh, go up. I'll just go up and come back down. It'll be And fun. sure enough, I did. Yes. I came down in a heap. I must have been thousands and thousands of gallons of water that just slammed me down into yep. the sand or a rock. I don't know which. But either way, my knee, my right knee, snapped backward, hyperextended, and broke in yep. two places, as it turns out. Now, I'm in need of help getting out of the water. I cannot stand. I can put no weight on this leg. Right. And I know I've been an athlete my whole life. I know something <laughs> is terribly wrong. Yeah. Houston, we have a big problem. <laughs> we have a problem. So we get back to the lounge chair, Randy carrying me on one side and she goes to get help. And I'm looking at my knee and knowing as I'm trying to just massage it and move it and restore it back to it'll be OK. It'll be OK. It'll be OK. I know it's not. It's not OK. I'm it will injured. be OK, but it is not OK at the moment. Right. I had some choices there. Yep. So just back to this idea of pause, ask, choose. I had some choices to make. And the obvious one was to be fearful, of course, Yeah. what this means to my life, my work. I was supposed to go to London to see my daughter in her overseas class. I was going to teach a class there, et cetera. There's a million things that are going on in my life over the next few weeks and months. And now there's all this uncertainty about what everything and anything's going to be changed. So in that moment, my choice was to be afraid and in fear and probably was a rational fear at that point, for sure. sure. Yeah. I mean, how am I getting out of Mexico? Right. (laughs) Am I going to need surgery? I mean, like, what's about to have surgery in Mexico? Yeah. Yeah. But my question in that moment where I paused, just consciously decide, how am I approaching this now? What's my frame? The way you said it earlier. Yeah. 
And what I chose to do instead was to say, literally said this to myself, what can I love in this moment? What is there to love in this moment? And I had a lot to say in my head. What is there that I can be grateful for in this moment? I am, for one thing, that wave could have killed me or snapped my neck. I could be paralyzed. I mean, forget it. Yeah. It was so many things. Yeah. I had a lot to be grateful for in that moment. And the last thing that was kind of hitting me is the guys were coming over to get me ice and carry like a whole thing going on. I wonder, I said this to myself, I wonder what I'm going to learn. Hmm as a result of this shit show that mm. I've now got myself into. <laughs> mm -hmm. Janine, it made all the difference yeah. in the world in that moment. I had options and what did happen, we don't have to discuss, but it was joy on so many levels. I learned so much and yeah, I missed some things and there were some consequences. And also I gained so much that I will never forget it. And I mean, in a positive way, yeah. never forget that experience. And the thing about it is that it didn't happen by chance. That's the point here. Mm -hmm. I was preparing to be resilient before I needed to be resilient. Right. And that's where it served me. Yeah. I didn't just in the moment of all this stuff and happening out of nowhere. I mean, complete blindside. Right. Just get like, you know, like I got a, like Zen like <laughs> and got religion in that moment. And right. went, oh, you know, it's okay. No, no. It He's was been practicing practice. for 30 years to. No, not for 30 years. Thank you for that. But no, I mean, a shorter period of time, I would say I've been more consciously practicing this since about the time that the pivot book was being incubated. Okay. So 2013, 14. And so, yeah, in about 10 years. And you go, that's a lot of time to be working and practicing, performing resilience. This is not the only need I've had. Like, I've needed to be resilient in other ways, but this sure. is a recent example. You go, so what does that mean to a business person, to a company, leadership? It's that when you practice this, when you are setting in motion to operationalize resilience before your organization needs it, before your leadership needs it, before your employees need it. If that had been done, we wouldn't be losing people the way right. we're losing them. And they're falling like whatever like the dominant. expression is. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, Adam, this has been wonderful. And I just noticed the clock and we definitely need to wrap for today. Thank you so much for your sharing of very personal stories for your sharing of your wisdom gained over these eight to 10 years of practicing resilience for your modeling of what is the options are that are available to us when we practice resilience so that in the moments when we need it, it is there. What the opportunities for developing those muscles and developing those practices and developing those rituals can be. Thank you for your wisdom. And above all, thank you for your friendship. I love you. I love you too. Ah, this has been the cost of not paying attention. I am Janine Hamner-Holman. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, 
Thanks for paying attention. This has been the cost of not paying attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams. I'm beginning to think I'm beginning